You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We all have pictures of who God is, what God is like, what his characteristics are, what God is doing in the world. And many of us, whether we've been raised in the church or not, have a picture of God that looks a lot like Sid and the Claw from that scene in Toy Story. A God who uh, picks and chooses who's going to go on to a better place and who's going to get left behind. And a God that picks and chooses those things based on certain characteristics or behaviors of the ones he's picking and choosing. The reason Sid wants a Buzz Lightyear is because Buzz is the best of the toys, right? And so we think of God as only picking and choosing the best of the best. And if we aren't Buzz Lightyears, then we might get left behind with the weird three-eyed squeaky alien toys, right? Friends, that's not the picture of God that we get in the scriptures. The scriptures have something far different to say. That uh, view of God is not realistic within the framework. It's also not super realistic in that movie because there's no way you get the claw to work three straight times. If you've played the claw games, that never happens, right? What we learn in the Bible is that God is far from being a maniacal picker and chooser of people based on our actions or our characteristics. Instead, we learn that God has a plan in mind that doesn't actually depend on our actions at all. It's a plan that is rooted in his overwhelming love and grace, which can't be stopped. And all we have to do is receive that love and grace. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be characteristically better. We don't have to impress God in order to be picked or chosen. We don't have to be Buzz Lightyear. We don't have to be the best of the best. That's actually the whole point of the message of the gospel. And what we learn in our text today, what we learn all throughout the Bible is that when we receive the love of God that has already moved, already taken the first step and the only step required, when we receive that in our lives, we get to live the transformed new life that we were always made for. Turn with me in a Bible, if you have one, uh, to the book of Romans. We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, if you'd like to follow along. We're going to have them up on the screen for you as well. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, anytime someone stands in the front of the room, including myself, and just reads a couple verses of the Bible, it should immediately remind you that the Bible is not a couple verses long, that these couple verses are located in a much larger picture. We are in an entire letter that's 15 chapters long called Romans, 16 chapters long, I think, 16 chapters long in Romans. This letter is a long thing, and so we can't just start to take a couple verses and forget what has come before and what comes after this. Romans chapter 8 that we're reading here has a much bigger context than these few verses. What Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8 is reckoning with a question, a universal question that all of us deal with. The question goes like this. Where can we find true life in the middle of a world that's full of suffering and pain? Where is lasting, sustaining life in a world that is full of death 
and groaning? That's the question that Paul is attempting to reckon with, something that all of us at some point in our lives also reckon with. And what Paul says is that receiving the love of God is the way through our suffering and our pain in this really radical new way. And there's three parts of this love of God that I want to explore today and unpack. And what I think is true, what I've experienced in my life and what Paul is getting at here is that when we know and receive these aspects of the love of God, it enables us to live entirely different sorts of lives. It enables us to encounter pain and suffering with an entirely different framework of how the world is working. So these are the three aspects of God's love. First, we get to experience God's love in the present today. And then we also get to remember God's love through the past, and we get to look forward to God's love in the future. God's love is all-encompassing according to our temporal minds. He goes into the past, the present, and the future, and we get to experience him in all of those places. So let's start first with experiencing God's love in the present. We see that in verse 28. Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are are called according to his purpose. And right off the bat, I want to acknowledge, this is one of the most misused and abused verses in Scripture. It gets uh, plastered onto Hobby Lobby pallets in nice calligraphy, right? And we hang it up on our walls. We say, oh man, everything in the world is just going to work out. If I just do the right things and I follow God, everything is going to be great, right? That's a, a, a misuse of this passage in many ways. And a lot of the messages in the Bible you can kind of misuse in that same way. Even the songs we sing sometimes can be, right? You're never going to let me down. Well, what does that mean, right? What do we mean when we say that God is actually going to be with us, that things will work out for good? It's not talking about circumstances, friends. It's easy to rip this passage out of Romans 8 and say, we know that the circumstances of our lives will become better if we follow God. We like that idea in our heads, that we're going to live with more security or comfort or ease when we follow God, that that's the life that he has for us. And even if you've been Christian for a while, even if you've been someone who's been coming to church and reading the Bible for a while, that notion can still creep in, even if it's implicit in your life. We often implicitly believe that our good actions or our right religious observances will lead us to better circumstances in our life, a better home or a better family, a better job, a better life here, now in the world. And that's why we all get frustrated when our circumstances go bad. You ever notice that? We get mad when we do the right thing and it doesn't work out for us. Think about it in your own life. Why do you get mad when you do the, the, the right and the kind thing, the moral thing or the ethical thing, and you end up getting hurt on the other side of it? You get mad because there's an assumption that you carry that my right actions will lead to right circumstances. We believe that there's a clear input-output uh, relationship between what we do and our circumstances. That's why we say phrases like, what goes around comes around, right? We all just kind of inherently buy into that notion that the good or the bad things that I do now will lead to good or bad circumstances. And if we rip these verses out of Romans 8, we can start to think that that's true of the Christian life. But that's not what Paul is saying here, you guys. The Christian life is not about better circumstances. Just before this verse, we talked about this last week, Paul says that Christians are going to groan and suffer and lament. Doesn't sound like better circumstances, right? Sounds like some pretty hard circumstances for Christians. Just a few verses after this, in verse 35 of chapter 8, Paul implies that we're going to suffer as Christians in a multitude of ways. He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? He's rhetorically saying that we are going to go through the same sorts of things that everyone else in the world goes through. 
Jesus hasn't come and given, this, given us this nice little God force field that protects us from all of the pain in the world. We have to go through it all. Hunger, nakedness, danger, sword, oppression in our lives. And friends, we need to be reminded that this is how the world works. We tend to want to think that God can just free us from the suffering, that in following God, I'll just live a pain-free life, but that's not how it works because the world is fallen and broken. The world is not functioning as it should. That's the whole message of Romans 8. The world is twisted, and Christians have to live in that same twisted world. And I know that we have to remember that as a community because I have to remember that all the time. A couple years ago, when I took my first step into full-time ministry work, it was a, a big step of faith, as we as Christians would call it. It was a big move into the unknown for me. I was working a job that paid more than twice what I would make in ministry, and the salary that I would make in ministry, I'd have to fundraise, something I had never done before. I took a big step of faith, believing that God would meet me and that God would use me for really sweet and powerful and good things. And so I stepped into ministry, God raised the funds for me, it was really awesome, and then a couple months after I started, something happened, you guys may have heard of it, COVID-19, a global pandemic swept through the world, and all of a sudden, my career, my financial situation, my long-term hopes and dreams of what I wanted to be, they were uncertain. My circumstances didn't get better when I stepped into ministry and followed God's call. They kind of got worse. And in my prayers, I had to reckon with that fact. I asked God, why haven't you shown up? Because I did my part. Why haven't you given me the life? Why have you given me the suffering and pain of COVID-19? As soon as I follow you, what are you doing? That's an experience that I'm sure all of you can relate to in some way. Doing the right thing and taking the right step and something not working out for you on the other side of it. That's because the world is broken, friends. The world doesn't work with this clear, I put this in and get this out. It's not a vending machine sort of world. The machine is broken, and right things don't always lead to good things. And bad things don't always lead uh, to justice in our world. And so we learn in this passage, following God does not get rid of the suffering in the here and now. Instead, it enables the followers of God to live transformed sorts of lives in the middle of the suffering. And so the Christian enters into their pain and their difficulty and their hardship in their life with a different approach entirely. It's an approach that trusts that God is working even in those spaces. That's the whole point of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you guys. The cross and resurrection indicate that true life in the person of God came and took on death head on. Went straight through death. Didn't avoid it, didn't circumvent it, didn't explain it away, but went straight through it. The whole point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that suffering doesn't get the last word. That Jesus goes right through it, and on the other side, he can bring healing and transformation for us. And this new life on the other side of the cross that Jesus lives, it's the same one that he invites us to live today. According to Paul, it's a life that both knows and names and feels deeply the pain and the suffering of our world. That knows those things aren't the way they should be. And also knows that in those very spaces, God is bringing redemption and restoration. That we can know deeply the pain that we go through and that we can also know that God is working in the middle of that pain, sometimes in ways we can't see. In fact, the most broken places of our lives, 
in our personal relationships, in our uh, more outward interactions with the world, the most broken parts of us in the world are precisely the places that God most profoundly meets us because it's there we know we need him. It's there we know that we can't get it on our own. It's there that we long to call out to God and it's there that God shows up. He goes to the farthest reaches, the depths of our person, the darkest parts of our hearts and says there, that's where we're gonna start healing things. That's the hope of the Christian. That's the experience of the Christian right now in the middle of pain and suffering. The Christian is someone who knows that no amount of pain, no amount of hardship, no amount of turmoil is beyond God's ability to redeem and restore. Nothing we go through. The Christian acknowledges that God is healing in and through the world right now. And that's not a reduction of suffering, friends. There's some times that it can sound like that. The Christians are just saying, ah, it's suffering, whatever, it's all going to work out, right? No, we are taught to lament the suffering. Jesus himself lamented the suffering. You guys remember the story of Lazarus in the scriptures? Lazarus, a friend of Jesus's, he died. Three days later, Jesus shows up and he knows that he's gonna heal Lazarus. Jesus knows he's gonna raise him from the dead. And so Jesus could come and say, guys, I got this suffering, not a big deal, I'll take care of it, we're good. He could come and say, guys, have you learned your lesson from this suffering? Because now I'm gonna fix it. But he doesn't do either of those things. You guys remember what he does? John chapter 11, verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible and maybe the most profound. Jesus wept. Jesus, in the middle of the pain and suffering, grieves that they exist. That's actually the whole point. God grieves the pain and suffering so deeply that he comes into the world and takes it head on so that we might not have to be captive to it, so that it might be destroyed for us. God's grieving over suffering leads to God's healing of suffering. God's grieving over suffering leads to God's healing of suffering. There's a great quote from a theologian named James Edwards. I think he puts it really powerfully here. He says, God does not will all things, but he is at work in all things. God does not will all things, but he is at work in all things. So friends, there's no pain, no suffering, and no hardship that we go through in our lives that can't be used by God to bring redemption and restoration on the other side. That's the promise. That God's love works in the middle of the suffering and forms us into the people that we were made to be. Paul is saying that we do not live in the best possible world, but that we are right now being formed for the best possible world in the best possible way. That's what receiving the truth of Christ's death and resurrection means. That's the present experience of the love of God in the middle of our pain. So that's the first part that Paul is bringing up here, that we as Christians, we don't get free to better circumstances. We get free to a better life in the middle of whatever circumstances we have. But the love of God isn't just about the present. It's also about the past. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 29. He says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Now I know that in especially Western Christian traditions, we've tended to come to the Bible with certain assumptions about what words mean or don't mean, and certain assumptions about what those words are telling us. We like approaching the Bible as a sort of theological dictionary. We like coming to it, opening it up and saying, here's a word like predestination, here's a word like conformed, here's a word that seems very theological. Let's define that word, get that information, pull it out of the Bible, put it in our heads and memorize it. 
That's how we tend to often think in the Western world about Christianity. It's about information, collection, and memorization. And yet over and over, the Bible, we learn, is not a theological dictionary, friends. It's not something that you flip through the pages, find a definition, memorize that, and move on. This whole library of texts is one cohesive story that we are being invited into. Just to kind of back that idea up, the majority of scripture, friends, around 76% is either narrative or poetry. 76% narrative or poetry, artistic expression, storytelling. And then much of the other 24% is composed of prose discourse, things like letters, which again, not dictionaries, different, right? You wouldn't read a letter like you read a dictionary. You wouldn't read a story like you read a dictionary. And I want to be clear, the Bible does have essential truths about who God is, who we are, and how this life of faith works. That is true. But those truths are always located in a story. And so whenever we read Paul use words that are hard for us to grasp, like predestined, we have to remember the big story that he's working in. We have to remember that that idea is located in a much larger story of what God is doing. What Paul is saying here is that God's love has always been going first has always been taking the initiative and that that love is not going to be stopped. That it is predestined from the beginning that God's plan is going to come to fruition, that his love and grace is going to come and redeem and restore the world. Let's look at that big story. Let's remember what this story is. At the start of things, God goes first by creating everything, by making it all and making it all work really, really well, by bringing us a harmonious universe, And then by making humans the ones who get to cultivate the life and flourishing in that universe. Humans were partners with God. That's the idea at the start of things. He's gone first. His love and his grace have given us everything. And then humans look at that definition of life. They look at that world and they say, cool, but I kind of feel like we can do better on our own. So thanks, God, but no thanks. And we'll kind of just do our own thing. We'll define life and flourishing on our own. And so we did that. And in doing so, we fractured the universe. Now, everything is broken. Sin and death reign in our lives. Sin and death reign around the world. Everything is broken in the universe. And God's response is again to go first. Where humans have turned away, God's love goes first. And he promises to restore that partnership with us, that original partnership at the beginning. He says he's going to do that through a new family. And that family is going to be used to bless everyone in the world. We just talked about this with the story of Abraham a few weeks ago. You can go listen to the sermons and follow the story if you'd like. God creates a partnership with Abraham and says, through this partnership, I'm going to bring life and flourishing to the world. That sounds really, really nice. And there's just one problem. Humans again turn away. They say, cool, God, but we still kind of think we can do life on our own. We still kind of think that we can separate ourselves from you. It's as if there's this part of humanity that can't quite live in this partnership on our own. We need God's help to do this. And so God's love, again, goes first. When God shows up in the world as a human, in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lives the true life of partnership that we were made for at the beginning. Partnership with God. The life that we always fail to live, Jesus lives it. And then Jesus dies the death that we were hurtling towards and that our world was hurtling towards. He takes on the death. And on the other side of that death, Jesus rises to show that death no longer gets the final word, but that Jesus' life does instead. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection bring healing to everything that the humans have failed to bring healing to. And so when Paul is talking about predestination 
here. When he's talking about the predestined plan of God, he is looking through the past to see how God's love has always been going first and how God's love again goes first for us in Jesus. How God has always been taking the first step towards redemption and restoration, even when we fail to do so. Jesus has always been the chosen path for us. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus has always been from the beginning the way that this thing was going to get resolved. And that means that when we receive the person of Jesus in our lives, when we truly love Jesus, we become part of this family of God. We get true life when we experience the love of God through the past, which has always been working to bring us into this restored family. That's always been the story. And notice what that restored family leads us to here. Do you see it leads us into being conformed into the image of his son? That's the language that Paul uses there. The word conformed is a fascinating one. It has the same root that we use in our English language for metamorphosis, morphos. It means a complete transformation from the inside out, an utterly changed sort of person. Paul is saying that when we receive this story of God, which has always been working and has done everything for us, When we receive that in our lives, we start to get transformed. We start to become metamorphosized into his essence. Our beings become like Jesus. Our life becomes like Jesus's. Our life starts to change because of what God has done through Jesus. And so being a Christian means our entire being is compelled by Jesus. That every part of us is being transformed and that we can't help but draw to him. That we can't help but become like him. The spirit of God starts to work in us in powerful ways when we receive what Jesus has done. There is a fixed trajectory for those who know and love Jesus that they will become more like him. That we, when we receive Jesus, will embody his patience, his love, his mercy, his grace. And that we'll be used to bring those things to a world that desperately needs them. And so this isn't a verse about how God, at the very beginning, looked at some people and said, They'll be special enough. I'll pick them. And everybody else gets left behind. This isn't a verse about how God looks at the Buzz Lightyears and said, you guys, you're the ones, and leaves the aliens behind. This is a verse about how God chose from the beginning the person of Jesus to be the healer of all creation. And that through Jesus, all of humanity could be invited back into partnership with God as things were at the beginning. That's the plan that God predestined, that in Jesus, a new family would be formed, a family that received redemption and restoration in every part of their lives. So we're being shown here that that plan is unstoppable, that the plan of life and the plan of healing will not be stopped and cannot be stopped, that it's been going from the past and it's going to keep rolling, and that we are invited, every single one of us is invited, is chosen by God to participate in that story. So receiving Christ gives us an experience of God's love in the present through suffering, giving us a different way to encounter suffering. It also reminds us that this love is working all the way through history. From the beginning to the end, it is unstoppable. But Paul also says that we can look forward into the future for what this looks like. In verse 30, he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I want to look at that last word he lands on, glorified. That word is talking about this eventual finale where everything gets fixed, where everything gets healed. The word glory carries with it a sense of majesty 
or uh, original purpose. The idea here is that the glory of creation at the very beginning is going to be restored at the end. That's why at the start of the Bible, you have a garden, and at the end of the Bible, you have a garden. It's all going to come together. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be this recreated cosmos where everything is working harmoniously together again. That's true in our lives, and that's true out there in the world. We'll get the lives that we were always made for, the life of Christ, the life that Christ exemplifies for us. We will become fully realized pictures of the people we were made to be, and we'll also see all of the pain and injustice in our world around us healed. Oppression will cease. Our planet will be fixed. Mourning and tears will be wiped away. And so God's love gives us this picture of true life in the future that we can look forward to. It glorifies us and it glorifies the universe and brings them back to what they were made to be at the start. There's a really good quote, I think, that captures this well. It's from a a classic of Russian literature, uh, The Brothers Karamazov. It's a really, really great book. If you want to borrow it, you're welcome to. It's not in Russian. You can read it in English. It's a big book. But one of the main characters, Ivan Karamazov is his name. Uh, Throughout the story, he's very cynical skeptical that God could really be working in a world that's as broken as ours. And he expresses that cynicism all throughout. But then, later in the story, he has a real tragedy and hardship that he encounters. And all of a sudden, he sees the world differently. In the middle of the tragedy and hardship, he sees a different world coming. And he puts it this way. He says, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all of the crimes of humanity, for all of the blood that they've shed. That it will not only make it possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That, my friends, is the Christian's understanding of glory. That is the finale that God is hurtling us towards, that things will be made right in the end and that God's redemption is unstoppable in our lives. Nothing can change that. Nothing can undo it. God is working in all things and he has chosen you to be a part of that story. And so now we're left with a choice. We look around us just like Paul did in Romans 8, and we see a lot of brokenness. We see politics, pandemics. We see depression in our minds, destruction in our planet. We see brokenness and badness on full display all the time. But we've also heard this story of what God is doing in the middle of it. We hear of the present experience of God's love in our midst, in the middle of our pain. And we see that suffering as ways that are growing us and shaping us. That doesn't justify the suffering, but we see that it's being transformed and renewed. We hear of the plan of God stretching all the way back into the past. A plan of healing everything. A plan that won't be stopped. And we hear of the glory that's to come. This final picture of everything working together again. It's all right here, you guys. It's all right here in the person of Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That story is something that we are all invited to. It's the story our souls are searching for. It's the life we long to live, where our deepest hurts are healed, where our deepest longings are fulfilled. So there's just one question for us. 
Will we receive Jesus? Will we receive his love and grace in our lives? And will we step into that story? Will we trust it? Your spot is ready in this story. God has made sure that it is ready for you to step in. And so I invite everybody, come and experience that good news. Receive Jesus today in your life. Receive his love and grace, whether that's the first time for you or the thousandth time for you. Receive your spot in this big cosmic story of healing, of life. Let's pray.